uh, about proper preparation for the soil of our hearts, I was also reminded that there's a certain part of us that we can't fix because we're human, because we're sinful. We can't fix our own sinful condition. It takes God to do that for us. By the, and by the grace of God, he does that for us. His power overwhelms us and fixes us, so to speak. One of my hobbies that I enjoy is bird watching. So this is a wonderful season of the year when the birds are starting to come alive and sing and they're migrating north and they're, uh, they, the birds are beautiful and it's always a great time. And thank you, Brother Wilbur. <coughs> One of the uh, things you always notice about birds, especially ducks, is that they can float in water and don't sink. They have an oil in their feathers uh, that they keep uh, nurturing. They preen their feathers to get the oil through their feathers. It helps them float on the water so they don't sink. But I'm told that if you take basic H and put it in water, say in a bucket of water, and put a duck in there, the duck will sink to the bottom and drown. Uh, I'm not sure what basic H is or does. I'm not a salesman for basic H, but I'm told that works that way. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a parallel. It's sort of a, of a picture lesson for this thought that I want to bring out, um, the fact that we can't fix ourselves. So we need God to fix the water for us so that it does penetrate us, so it does come into us. When you put basic H in water, a duck can't do anything about that water uh, causing it to, the water penetrating its feathers and causing it to sink and drown. Um, and again, we need God's help to do that. When I was a boy growing up, we had a record at home we played a lot. <clears throat> and the song, the words of the song have come back to me many times. Uh, I'm not going to sing it, just say the words, but... The words go like this, if a nest of live hornets were brought to this room and the creatures allowed to go free, they would not compel you to go against your will, but they'd just make you willing to go. <laughs> Sometimes God does that for us. He makes us willing to go against our will, so to speak, but we, we choose it. God won't force our will. He never does. But sometimes he does something to the water to make us drown in the water or to make us willing to go. And my prayer for us tonight is that, that God will do that for us again. He will penetrate our hearts by the power of his Holy Spirit and speak to us here tonight. It's only because of him, it's only through him that anything like that can occur, can happen. So again, I, I greet you and I bless you here in the name of Jesus tonight. I'd like to turn to John chapter 8 for a lesson here from uh, a story of Jesus' life, a part of Jesus' experiences here. John chapter 8, this is where the woman was caught in adultery. And the church leaders brought her into Jesus to uh, see what he has to say. I'd like to read this passage. Let's stand. You mind standing with me here? Well, let's sing our song first, What I Say and What I Do. You want to put that on the screen, uh, Tyler? And we'll sing that song, and I'd like to read this, uh, this portion of Scripture, John 8. Should have given you a heads up. Sorry about that. This is a song of dedication, a song of commitment to God, and it's a, it's a prayer from our hearts to God. What I say and what I do, may it be a joy to you. I'll be what you want me to, 
I love you, Lord Jesus. I love you with all my heart, and I'll always pray. I will be like you are more and more each day. Every day and every night, help me, Lord, to do what's right. I'll serve you with all my might. I love you, Lord Jesus. I love you with all my heart, and I'll always pray. I will be like you are more and more each day. Thank you for the love you've shown. Thank you for the joy I've known. Make my heart your very own. I love you, Lord Jesus. I love you with all my heart, and I'll always pray. I will be like you are more and more each day. John chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that, with, he that is without sin, among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself, he saw none but the woman. He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You may be seated powerful words of Jesus. This portion includes probably the most powerful and shortest sermon that was ever preached. The most powerful and shortest sermon that was ever preached. He had total response from his audience. Total. Everybody responded in a dramatic way. They didn't all respond the right way, but they all responded in a very powerful and dramatic way. <clears throat> in this passage here, it says the scribes and Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus uh, they obviously had an had a ulterior motive here in bringing her to him. They didn't really care about uh, her, about the fact that she had sinned, about the, the victims, about you know, what was going on. They were interested in trapping Jesus. And this, as I understand, was about a week. or in the, It was very shortly before Jesus went to the cross. It may have been the week before he, was, uh, he was in, at, went to the cross. He was in Jerusalem speaking different days. And this is on one of those days, as I understand it. And so he would have been in the temple area there speaking to the people. And notice how in verse 2 it says, He came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. Have you ever thought about what kind of person Jesus was? He didn't go around posting billboard signs or, you know, uh, announcements about Jesus is going to be here, come and speak. You know, we're going to have meetings here. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But Jesus never had to do that. He was the kind of person that people just drew, that went to him. He drew them to him. He had such a power of God in his life. He was God, but as a human person, he had such a power of God in his life. People just went to him. They were drawn to him. They couldn't resist him. 
And I would challenge us to be that kind of a Christian as well. The people come asking us, building bridges to us, and finding out what God is doing in our lives. Uh, Proverbs has a verse, Proverbs 18, verse 16. It says, a man's gift maketh room for him. A man's gift maketh room for him. And let me just say it this way. The bridges that we build, that the ch I, should, I should say, the bridges that the church builds to the world to bring the world into the church, the church crosses those bridges into the world. You follow what I said? When the church builds bridges from the church into the world in order to bring the world into the church, the church crosses that bridge into the world. But if the world builds bridges that come into us, they cross that bridge to come into the church. A man's gift maketh room for him. And Jesus was that kind of a person where he drew people to himself because the power of God was so rich and so powerful and so, so wonderful in his life. They just came to him. And that's what we see here. It says, all the people came to him and he taught them. And while he was there, the scribes and Pharisees came, of course, uh, <clears throat> and they had this accusation. And if this accusation was correct, was their charge, was the, the uh, and I assume it was correct. I, I, I assume that this was correct. She was caught in the act of adultery and she was guilty. And so they were getting ready to do according to the law. Was it true what they said about the law? Was that really true, that she should be stoned? Yes or no? Yes, it was. It was true. The charge or the, 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 the uh, punishment for her was true. And they had every right, according to the law, to bring this about. And so they brought her into Jesus here. But again, as I said, they weren't interested in, in her, her salvation, in her redemption. They weren't interested in helping her through her issues. They were just simply interested in trapping Jesus and using this woman to try to trap Jesus on their way out to do their business with her. And I, I would, as I picture it, they already had stones in their hands. I don't know that, but I picture that. They were all ready to do the deed, but they came to Jesus here to try and trap him on their way out the door. Uh, I think they were looking for a reaction from Jesus. Isn't that how it is many times? People come to us, or Satan comes to us, and brings situations to our lives. He wants us to react in a, in a, in a great way, or wants to say things without thinking things through, or jump to conclusions, or make conclusions without having all the facts. He, he comes to us wants reactions from us. And I think that's what they wanted from Jesus here, to try to catch him at something. And oftentimes that's when we get caught, when we make reactions to things. But P Jesus was very wise. Uh, it says in Proverbs 15, verse 1, a soft answer turneth away wrath. Someone's angry at you, the best thing to do is what? Say nothing in response. No, say nothing in response. <clears throat> James 1, 19 and 20 says we should be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. It says, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And Jesus had a very proper response here because of their, their emotional involvement and their activity and their, uh, their Dutch word is eifrichness. <laughs> we say that in Lancaster County, if you say that here or not. But it's, it's a word that means you're just all involved and you're just all into this thing and you know, you're just going forward, surging forward. That's how they were. And he just didn't say anything. In fact, <clears throat> uh, he did something very interesting. And it must have frustrated them. It says that when they continue asking him, he didn't pay attention to him first. But then when they continue asking him, it says he, he, uh, 
he, he's went down to, he stooped down with his finger to, and wrote in the ground as though he heard them not. Wonder what he wrote in the ground. Wouldn't you really like to know? He's wrote in the ground. He's got down, just started writing the ground. And they were there, you know, imagine them boisterous and pushing and shoving. And, you know, this was no, no place where there was easy to see in the middle. So everybody was crowding around Jesus and getting, trying to get up front and getting the view and trying to push their way in and see what Jesus had to say. And, you know, it's a pushing, boisterous crowd. And this woman was there somewhere. And I don't know how she was doing, but, you know, it wasn't a real good situation for her, for sure not. But they were all in a, in a, in a stew, sort of a chaotic situation here. And Jesus calmly keeps riding on the ground. Writing on the ground. And it says, uh, now here it says in verse 7, that when they continued asking him, he finally lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone on her. Got down and started writing again. Don't you wonder what he was writing? It doesn't say. But he was writing something that was very powerful. Something that was uh, Irresistible. It, it reminds me, I, being, a, being a witness for Christ is a powerful thing, and sharing our faith is a wonderful thing. I, I, and, but with that, I think one of the most powerful ways to share faith is literature distribution. We need to do it one-on-one -on -one with people as well, as far as that goes. But when we live, give literature to people, give tracts, give portions of the Bible to people, you can't argue with it. I remember one time we had a book in, that we had translated into Romanian. The title of it was Drunkard's Children. And it was about a story of a, of a family that, whose father was a drunkard. And so happens in Romania where we were, some places, some villages had a real problem with drunkenness. The fathers were real drunkards. And so we had this book translated to Romanian. We were distributing it to different places. And the one place where the book found its way in, the father was a drunkard. The family was going to church, but the father was a drunkard. He wasn't going to church. But this book was given to them. And they were a little nervous about taking the book home because of the title of the book, Drunkard's Children. Uh, but they took the book home, and, and he spied the book. It was a brand new book, and that was attractive. You know, it was, had a nice cover and had, a, had a, a, a new book, a new cover, and it was, it was attractive. He picked it, up, picked it up and started reading it without looking at the title. And after reading for a little bit, he started looking, wondering, what is this about? He looked at the title and became very angry, very angry. And he accused them of bringing the book home to, to make him feel guilty. And he threw the book across the room and stomped out, stormed out of the house. And they didn't know what to do. They were just really nervous. You know, when a man's drunk, he's out of control, and you never know what he's going to do next, at least in his case. And they, uh, they didn't know what to do. But a while later, he came back in. He picked up the book and read it from cover to cover. And the next week, he stayed away from drink. And the week after that, he went to church for the first time. You know, I could have gone to that home and I could have preached to him. I could have told him, tried to reason with him. Your drunkenness is destroying your family, your life, your, your, life, your, your livelihood. It's, it's a bad for you. I could have preached at him until I was blue in the face. Do you think it would have done any good? I doubt it. I sincerely doubt it. But that book, you couldn't argue with it. It was there. You could throw it away. You could burn it. You could do whatever. But the book was there. It wasn't going to argue with you. And when Jesus was writing in the ground, it's kind of how that was. You couldn't argue with what he was writing. <laughs> you know, it didn't talk back at you. I remember another case, a, a young mother with a, a number of children in their house, they uh, had jobs for the children. And, you know, when you have jobs for children, there's always this argument, it's his turn, it's, it's not, you know, it's my turn, it's your turn. And you have all these arguments sometimes, you know. But she fixed that. She put a sign in the refrigerator, a chart. Every day, everybody had a job, a different job. And you couldn't argue with that. 
If it was your turn to wash dishes, but the chart said you have to, you had to do it. Nobody could argue with that. It's just how it was. They, they couldn't argue with her. She, couldn't, she wasn't making any decisions at that point. She just put it all on the, on the paper, and the paper dictated to them their order. And in a sense, that's what Jesus did when he was writing in the ground. It, it was more powerful than speaking to them. They weren't listening anyway. They were wanting to him react. They were trying to get him to respond to them. But they were going to listen to what he had to say. So he just wrote in the ground in silence. And I, I've, I've often tried to picture that scene. I wonder how this was. You know, just this turmoil and the chaos and all the things happening there, and he's just writing on the ground. You know, I, I don't know how long this scene took place, but it took a little while, I think. Long enough, they started noticing what he was writing. And they started getting quiet. Instead of being boisterous and chaotic and trying to get his attention and trying to speak to him, they started getting quiet. It says here, in verse 9, they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning to the eldest, even unto the last. What I picture is that they were standing with stones in their hands, ready to go. And they were boisterous and loud, but as they saw what he was writing, they started getting quiet. And finally, it was all quiet. Jesus writing. Nobody's saying anything. You hear a, a stone drop, and then another, and then another. <laughs> finally, all the students dropped. They left. They went away. They didn't stay. That's the sad part. They should have stayed. Jesus had a message for them. He really did. Because all the stones dropped one by one. They all left one by one, from the oldest to the youngest. And he looks up. No one's there anymore. He says, woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man accused thee? She said, no man, Lord. They've gone. They've gone. He had a message for her. He had a message for them too, but they didn't stay to hear it. The message for her was for them as well. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What did they fail to do? Why did they not uh, stay for the message? What do you think? They were convicted, I'm sure. But what did they fail to do in response to that? They failed to repent. Yeah. I think they saw their sinfulness. It says they were convicted by their conscience. The conscience is something we have that God has given us from birth. Conscience means with knowledge. We have the knowledge of God in our hearts from birth. We have the knowledge of right and wrong from birth. And when we respond, when, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and convicts us, we respond to that inborn knowledge that we have of what's right and what's wrong. But they resisted the right, and they allowed their conscience to be hardened, and they left. They went away. And I think that's so sad. <clears throat> uh, they, they should have stayed. They, they should have they should have heard the message that Jesus gave to the woman. It was for them as well. But they didn't stay to hear it. Powerful message. Powerful message. So what did Jesus write? What do you think? Any ideas? Can you think of something that is convicting and powerful and life-changing? That Jesus may have been writing on the ground. Can you think of something? Anything at all? Okay, which is a part of what? 
Okay, that's correct. That's correct. Um, it's, uh, the greatest commandment, which is a, a review, or a, a, a um, uh, summary of what? The Ten Commandments. I'm going to suggest, without scriptural background, that he wrote the Ten Commandments on the ground. In Galatians 3.24, it says, The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. He said, Without the law, I was free. When the law came, sin revived and I died. Romans 7. The law is what brought him to guilt and brought him to condemnation. The law. And I going to suggest that what he wrote in the ground was the law, the Ten Commandments. Powerful message. Um, that verse in Galatians, the laws of schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Schoolmaster there isn't a teacher or a professor or like an instructor in school. The, the schoolmaster there, that, that word means it's, it's an educator. Uh, it's, it's one that prepared the child for school. When a nobleman had children, he would hire an educator to prepare, to teach his children how to prepare themselves for school. They had to learn how to brush their teeth, how to change their clothes, how to keep clean, and how to be courteous and all that. Had to, how to have good deportment so that when they got to school, they were ready to learn. The teacher taught them their, their lessons at school, but didn't teach them how to prepare for it. The schoolmaster was their, was their prepare for the school. And the law is our prepare for grace. Before grace, we have law. The law is what brings us to Christ. Without the law, we don't realize we're sinful. We don't realize we're, we're creatures that, needs, uh, that need repentance. Uh, these these uh, scribes and Pharisees, they were faced with the law, and they were convicted, and they were guilty, but they didn't respond as they should have. They should have repented. They should have said, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm sorry. The uh, words that Jesus gave us here in Verse 11, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Wonderful words. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wages. Some people say sometimes, I've heard people say to me in witnessing situations, so why does a loving God send people to hell? How would you answer that? You say he doesn't. Okay. They choose, that's good. But what would you answer to a person that says, I don't, uh, God, uh, you know, God doesn't, he loves people. He doesn't send people to hell. How can a loving God send people to hell? What would you say to him? You're right, Esther, they choose. Romans 6 talks about wages. When you go to work, you work and you earn wages. You get paid for what you work, right? The wages come to you because you've earned them. And we understand that. When we sin, we earn death. The wages of sin is death. And when somebody goes to hell, it's not because God sends them there. It's because they chose to go there. People don't understand that. But it's true. They choose to go there. They, 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 because of their sin, they earn wages, and the wages is death in hell. But there's, there's uh, solutions God doesn't let us there. He says, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have salvation through Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth. What does confess mean? Excellent. To agree with God the way what he says about us. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Confession uses your mouth. Confess with your mouth. That, it's public. It's open. 
It's transparent. It's authentic. It's, it's revealing. Confess with your mouth. Not just in your heart. Not just in your mind. It's, it's open. I'm a sinner. I have sinned. I have done wrong. And we confess that before God and other people. Confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thy heart that God shall raise him, hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins. Again, that word confess. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the best examples of confession that I can think of is in Matthew 15, when the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus there, and she had, a, she had a child, I think it was a son, that had an evil spirit in him. And she brought this child to him, said, would you please heal him? Now, she was a Gentile woman. She was from the Tyre area in north of Israel. And when she came, Jesus' disciples were there, and she said to, or I'm sorry, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I didn't come for, I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Said that in her hearing. In other words, he was telling her, I didn't come for you. I'm sorry. You have a problem, but I'm not here to fix it. You, you got to go somewhere else. I didn't come for you. She was a Gentile woman. And, but she, and for some of us, that's enough. That's enough. We say, oh, God doesn't care. You know, he didn't hear my cry. He didn't hear my prayer. I'll go somewhere else. But this woman didn't quit. She kept on going. She came and fell before him. And she said, Lord, please help me. And then he said, it's not fit. He said to her for the first time, it's not fit to give, the, to, give to the dogs what belongs to the children. What did he just call her? A dog. Can you imagine? What a put down. I mean, it looks that way to us. For some of us, that's enough. God doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. I'm in a terrible situation. He's not helping me. I'm going to go somewhere else. But that, for her, that was, she didn't quit. That didn't turn her away. She said, but Lord, even the dogs can have the crumbs off the table, can't they? And when she said that, Jesus responded to her. Why? Because she agreed with Jesus' definition of her. That's confession. That's confession. I'm a dog. I'm dirty. I, I don't deserve anything at all. I'm nothing. But yet, can't you give me some crumbs, even if I am a dog? Jesus helped her, ministered to her need, because she confessed her sin. And for us, if we want help from God, we need to confess our sins in that way. Agree with God to the nth detail of what it is that we've done wrong. Sometimes we have confessions in, with other people, and you say, well, you know, I kind of made a mistake. You know, I'm sorry I did that. I shouldn't have done that. You know, a, a real confession, though, doesn't only confess what we've done, but why. When you say something to someone else, and they're hurt by what you've said or done, why did you do that? Was there hatred in your heart? Was there bitterness, anger toward that person? A real confession goes to the very core and says, what I said to you was wrong, and I'm sorry, and I hated you in my heart, and I repent from that. That's true confession. That takes it down to the core. But beloved, that brings life. That exposes what we are. We're sinners. It, it brings it out for, up front before God, and God can cleanse us. He can wash us when we fully confess our sins. A partial confession, he can't really cleanse us. Because there's something there yet we haven't yet confessed. Confess your sins one to another, and he will bring healing. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession. such a th It's good for the soul. It's good for our fellowship. It's good for our personal lives, for our families. <clears throat> Somehow I think 
We don't have confessions like we should. When I was a boy, of course, you know, I always looked better when, when long ago you look back and say, well, the, the good old days, you know, that's how it was. And, and it's probably not much different than now. But it seemed to me back in those days we had more confessions in church. People would get up and confess things. I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry I said that. I was, you know, they had public confessions and we forgive them. I don't know, does that happen here yet? Does that happen? I suspect this need is as much now as ever. If it doesn't happen, it probably should. You know, confess our sins. Confess your sins to those you've wronged, to God, first of all, and to those you've wronged, to people, and so on, to situations. Respond to situations by confession. Confession and bring and seek healing. Confession delivers us. It frees us. Satan cannot bring charges against us if we confess our sins. Satan, the Bible tells us, he accuses a brethren before the, before the throne. He, he goes to the throne. He confuses. He, can, he, he uh, um, accuses you of sin before God. He says, this brother has sinned. This person has sinned. Look what he's done. She said, no, no, he's confessed his sin. It's all taken care of. But if you haven't confessed that sin, he has a legal right of, of charge against you. He has a legal charge against you that Jesus says, well, he hasn't confessed it yet. <laughs> I don't know how it goes there. But, you know, when we confess our sins, it frees us of all unrighteousness. It delivers us. It sets us free from any charge that Satan can bring against us. And I encourage us, Exercise confession. Use confession um, as, as, a, as an opportunity for cleansing, for growth, and for spiritual nurture. And I'm going to suggest here that Jesus wrote the Ten Commandments on the ground. I don't know that. I can't point to the Bible and say that's what it was. But based on what the Ten Commandments are and do, and also what it says are being convicted by their own conscience, I'm suggesting he wrote the Ten Commandments. There's nothing to convicting like the Ten Commandments. I'd like to look at them. Turn to Exodus 20. These are first given by God through Moses to the people at Mount Sinai. And it was a, it was a wonderful and terrible event all at once. <clears throat> These Ten Commandments are the core of the gospel of love. I want to point that out. Let me read them first to Exodus 20. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But on the seventh day is the, the, seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, made it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his os, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Awesome. Notice the response. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed it and stood afar off. They ran away. 
They said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. They were so overwhelmed and so um, shocked by these words of God coming in the drama, the dramatic way they did. They were just terrified. And they said, Moses, you, you talk to God and then talk to us. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is to get us to fear God, to fear him in a healthy way. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. So the first commandment, no other gods. In Ezekiel 6.4, the prophet was talking to the people. He said, you're going to die with your idols. You can turn there if you wish. Ezekiel 6.4, you're going to die with your idols. And that's how it is. When a person dies, what's left? His idols. What he worshipped, what he lived for, what he accomplished. That's what's left. They had problems with... with uh, uh, worshiping false gods, of course, and having false gods among them. And he said, you're going to die with your, among your idols. And that's how it is for us. Whatever we worship outside of God, when we die, it's going to be left behind. It's, it's going to be evident what we worshiped and what we, what we served. In Judges 2, in verse 3, the angel talking to the people there after Joshua had died and they were falling into sin. He says, the gods are be a, will be a snare to you. The false gods among you will be a snare to you. They were starting to, to gravitate to the false gods of the people around them. Instead of destroying them, they were starting to gravitate to those gods and adopt them, starting to worship them. And he said, those, the angel said, those gods are going to be a snare to you, and they are. Jesus said, you can't serve God and mammon. God will have all of us or none of us. All of us or none of us? Where are you at tonight? Does God have all of you or just some of you? We try to, you know, work our way through and uh, try to do things. Uh, it's going to be all right. You know, it doesn't really matter. God wants all of us or none of us. Really, that's how it is. You can't serve God and mammon. That's just how it is. Jesus said that. In, uh, in Romans uh, 13, 9 to 10, I think that's the reference. Yes, it says, For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. The Ten Commandments teach us how to love. And the, the highest expression of love to God is obeying the Ten Commandments. Loving God and obeying the Ten Commandments are linked together. They go together. They can't separate them. And God wants all of us or none of us. <clears throat> he wants all of our love or none of it. No other gods. The second commandment, no graven images. <clears throat> In, uh, again, you, you meet people and they say things, and I've had people say to me, well, you know, the God you're talking about isn't the God I believe in. You know, your God puts people to hell and your God is kind of a God of justice and you know he, he hates sin and deals with sin I, I believe in a God of love and mercy you know what that person is doing 
He's creating a false god. A god that he wants to worship. A god that suits his ideas. God won't be worshipped that way. There's only one god, and he, he alone is to be worshipped. False gods, that's a violation of, he, that person's violating the second commandment. He's making a graven image. He's making a false god that he can worship, that he can feel comfortable with. But that will not, will not get us to heaven. That will not satisfy God. <clears throat> No graven image, no other object in place of God. In 2 Samuel 5, I won't turn there, but 2 Samuel 5, in, in the first battle that David led the army, his army uh, against the Philistines, after he was king, Saul had died, and David was crowned king. And when the Philistines heard he was crowned king, they came up against him. They were going to settle this matter once and for all. New king, young man, they were going to put him in his place and subjugate him. Well, he had a tremendous battle over the Philistines there, a tremendous victory. God gave him a huge victory, and they were destroyed, and the people fled, and they left behind their, their idols. The Philistines had lots of idols. They carried idols with them in the battle. And what did David do there? Did you know? He took those idols and burned them. Because he knew if they would take these home as trophies of war, which they could. What a neat little souvenir, you know, this little object. We won this in battle. This reminds us of our battle that, that we won. You know, God helped us win. He said, no, no, nothing of that. He burned them all. He destroyed these images because he knew they'd be a, a snare to the people. And sometimes we need to remove objects from our lives because they become a snare. They distract us away from God. <clears throat> a while ago, I was in Africa, had a great time, and I picked up this little rattle thing that, you know, they use in songs and worship and different things, and it was kind of a cute little souvenir, you know, I, I hung it down in my basement with my archives, things I keep there just for funny little keepsakes, and <clears throat> I don't know, you can tell me I'm radical, I don't know, but somehow, over a course of time, uh, the Lord started speaking to me about, about that little rattle, and I felt convicted I need to get rid of that rattle. I, I took it out and burned it. To me, it was a souvenir of our time in Liberia. I had a great time in the jungle there and talking to people. and It was, it was a kind of neat reminder, but it, somehow there was, I sensed in my spirit there was spiritual warfare going on relating to that rattle. And I, tell me I'm radical, I don't know, but I went and took it out and burned it. And after I burned it, there was a peace came in our home that hadn't been there before. Is there a connection? I can't point to it and say, yes, absolutely there was, but somehow it seems there was. I just offer that to you. I'm not saying you need to go out and burn your rattles if that's what you have. But do whatever God tells you. But whatever, sometimes we, get, we obtain objects that have connections with them that we're unaware of. Spiritual connections, that is evil spirit connections that we're unaware of. And they can bring dis discord and disharmony in our home until we get rid of those things. Do whatever God tells you to do, but no false images. That's the second commandment. The third commandment here. Uh, oh, further, it says here about gen talks about generational iniquity, and I don't know how much you've thought about this, but there is such a thing as generational iniquity, where uh, iniquity is different than sin. The Bible's clear: every man dies and pays for his own sin. Every man's guilty only of his own sin; no one else's. But iniquity is something that is passed on from generation to generation. It's a bent toward sin. It's a bent toward evil. It's a it's a tendency toward evil. Uh, for example, my uh, my uh, father. Uh, well, let me go back further. My grandfather, uh, he had issues with the federal government in his farming career. There were things the federal government wanted him to do. He said, nothing doing. We're not going to do this. In fact, he had cows. He was a farmer, dairy farmer, and the, the government decided that they're going to have to give TB shots to the cows 
once every three years. I think it's every year now, but back then it was once every three years. He said, nothing doing. The federal government's not going to touch my cows. He sold his cows. He said, that's, that's, he, he thought it was, a, it was the, uh, the uh, uh, mark of the beast. He said, we're not going to do that. And he, it was kind of his attitude is what I'm, what I'm gathering from what I've been told. And anyhow, later on, my father, growing up in, my, in his father's home, uh, he, he was Amish. And of course, as an Amish boy, he was not supposed to have a car, but he had one. And one day, driving out the lane there at, at his home, my grandfather stood behind a bush and heaved the rocks to the windshield of my father's car when he was driving out the door, uh, out the drive. You know, it's kind of funny, but you know what? There's something going on here. You see what I'm talking about? Sort of an issue with authority. And guess what I've dealt with probably more than anything else? Authority issues. They've been difficult for me. Responding properly to authority has been a difficult journey for me. I'll be honest with you. And I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud of it at all. There's been some, some hard lessons I've had to learn because I was not able to respond to authority very well. It's an iniquity that's been passed on. It doesn't have to be. We can repent of it. We can say, Lord, this iniquity, I'm sorry, would you please break this in the name of Jesus and clear Satan out of this territory, take back the ground. We can, we can reclaim that ground and the iniquity can be stopped. But it says here, the iniquity of the fathers upon the children goes to the third and fourth generation. That's an issue that's related to the second commandment. Then by, by the same token, mercy is shown to thousands when that iniquity chain is broken. So for whatever it's worth, I just encourage you to consider that. The, uh, the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Taking God's name in vain is taking what God has declared holy and dragging it through the mud. God's name is holy. He said it is. When we use it as a curse word, it's putting his name in the mud. That's profanity. And anything God declares holy and we defile it is profanity. Esau was guilty of that. In Hebrews uh, 12, it tells us he, that profane Esau because he despised the birthright. The birthright was holy. It was designed by God to give to give it to the oldest son to, and the, the responsibility that went with it, he was to care for his family. He was to, he was to oversee the, the needs and take care of his family, the, the larger family as a whole. He despised that. It calls him profane because he despised what God had declared holy. In Genesis 9 after Noah came out of the ark and he was drunk and he was laid uncovered in his in his tent <clears throat> Ham and his son saw him there and kind of made a joke out of it at least according to the context it seems to me they made fun of this thing made a joke out of it and when God created clothing in the garden of Eden he it was holy it was honorable it was something God designed and, and wanted and it's very important and they made fun of it they mocked it and they got cursed because of it that's profanity. Taking what God has declared holy and making it unholy or defiling it, dragging it through the mud. Usually we think of curse words, but it can be other things too. The fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath day holy. God's special day is like a birthday to him. You know, when you have a birthday in your house, what do you do? We tried to make a big deal in our family. You know, you have gifts and you have a, a, a cake and you have a party and you have a, a meal and everybody's together and you have this celebration. You're honoring that one that has a birthday. It's his special day. And you, you arrange your schedule so that it suits, so that everything is favors him on that special day. The Lord's day is like a birthday to God. Honor him that way, like it's his birthday, 
Like it's, it's his, it, the Bible calls it, it's his special day. He, he made it holy. When we profane God's holy day, we're, it's actually violating the second commandment as well because we're making profanity out of his holy day. And the Bible is very clear in Isaiah 58 and other places where breaking the Sabbath was a very serious, uh, brought a very serious curse on the people. Now we say, well, we don't observe, observe the Sabbath. We observe the Sunday, the first day of the week, and it's true. Uh, after Jesus rose from the dead, it's clear. The record is very clear. His disciples started meeting on the first day of the week as well as on Saturday. For a while, they met both days. But the, initially, they, they, they made a change there and started meeting on the first day of the week, and it became their normal practice, which we continue today. And so if somebody meets on Saturday for the, for the Sabbath day, I'm not going to contest that. But in our day, we, have, we, we observe the first day, which I think is appropriate. It's a tithe of our time to God. Our energy is the first day of the week and so on. But it's God's holy day. We are to use it for God's glory. And I'm going to say something that you may disagree with, and it's okay if you do. And I'm not going to make an argument out of it. It's just what I believe. I, I, I'm concerned about our Sunday activities have become very casual. We don't mind missing Sunday because we're traveling to Colorado, traveling to Pennsylvania, traveling somewhere. We just drive and don't go to church that Sunday. I don't know. Does that seem right? To me, it's kind of too casual. And I just encourage us, observe the first day of the week is God's holy day. It's his birthday. It's his special day. Use and observe it that way and make sure your family understands this is God's holy day. God is first today. It's not for own private pleasure. Isaiah 58 curses those who use God's holy day for their private pleasure. No, it's for God's pleasure. And let's keep it that way. That's the fourth commandment. The fifth commandment. <clears throat> Honor thy father and thy mother. Thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. In Ephesians 6 it says, Children, obey your parents that they, you may live long on the earth. You say, we're not children anymore, but I think even after we're married, we need to honor our parents. It's important that our children know that we honor their grandparents, that they're, they're people of honor in our, in our families, in our, in our houses. <clears throat> God has given us our parents, our grandparents, and whoever, because he blesses us through them. He gives us counsel and advice to them. And when we dishonor them, Proverbs is very clear that it brings a curse on us. We dishonor our mother and our father, our parents. That's true for children and youth. It's also true for us older ones, I think. We need to honor those that, that have paved the way before us. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Matthew's Matthew 5, Jesus is very clear there that if we hate someone, it's the same as killing them. Why? Because it's the same emotion. We may, we may suppress that emotion. We may say, well, I'm not saying it, you know, but it's in my heart. If that emotion is in my heart, it's the same as killing that person. That's how serious it is. You see how the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament have been brought to the New and the bar is raised. There's higher expectations, New Testament, than the Old Testament. <clears throat> if we hate uh, it's the same as killing. We're to love our enemies, not hate them, not, not destroy them. <clears throat> Recently, I was speaking with a client of mine, and I, it was a shocking conversation for me because it revealed something to me that I didn't realize had been there. I, 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 it was time that I woke up. We were talking about Ukraine and, and Russia and Putin and all that, and my client made this comment. He said, it's time somebody puts a bullet through Putin's brain. And you know what? In my heart, I found myself agreeing. I was horrified. I said, I'm a Christian. I couldn't do that. He said, I'm a Christian too, but I could do it. But you know, if we really love God, we couldn't do that. No, no. Putin needs salvation as much as we do. He's a sinner just like we are. He's no different than us. His need for Christ is just the same as ours. We can't hate him. We can't hate anyone. 
We need to love our enemies. That's the gospel, the power of the gospel. If we hate someone, it's the same as killing them, and we're guilty before God. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, the law said if you steal, you need to return up to five, it was sometimes four, sometimes five times the amount of what you've stolen. <clears throat> Had a letter from a, a young man one day. Uh, he said as a young boy, he had stolen something from a market. I don't know how much it was. It wasn't just a whole lot, a real big amount, but it was somewhat significant. And he said, now I'm a Christian. I'm 20 years old, and I, the market isn't there anymore. I want to make this right. How can I make my, my stealing right? He was guilty. He, was, he stood before God. He said, I'm guilty of stealing. I want to make this right. And we couldn't find the people he'd stolen from anymore. What would you tell him? I prayed about that. I, I'm not sure if I told him the right thing or not, but I said, why don't you figure out how much you owe that person, that market, whatever it was, and add some interest to it and give that to the, to the Lord's work, to the church or to someone that has real need of it. And give that money as a token of your, your, um, your um, uh, restitution, as a token of your restitution and your repentance. And I, I think he did that. But, you know, when we steal, we need to make it right. Yeah, we need to make it right. Stealing is a sin that will take us to hell if we don't repent of it. The Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. That's lying. How many of us haven't lied? Even small ways. So easy to lie. Say a, a wrong truth or, I mean, say an untruth or say or exaggerate, you know. Say something that makes us look good even though it's not quite true. You know, that sort of thing. <clears throat> the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. This has to do with not only materialism, but sexual fantasies. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant, maidservant. And he talks about uh, uh, coveting things that people have. I think, I think two areas where we fail is in, in our walk with, in our walk in the world is sexually and materially. Yeah, we sin sexually in our minds, in our hearts. Jesus said, if you, if you commit adultery in your heart, it's the same as doing it. A while ago, I was called for jury duty. And uh, in our state, you have to show up. And you can explain why you can't, and you can give reasons so on, but you have to show up. And so I showed up, and there were several hundred of us there. And they were, they were, I think, getting juriors for about three different cases. All three of them involved incest and sexual sins where uh, minors were being violated and so on. And so they were getting juriors to try these cases. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking about these cases, and they hadn't interviewed me yet, but I was sitting there thinking, you know, if I'm called to jury duty, I'll sit in, I'll sit in the jury casting judgment on someone that has committed this terrible deed of sexual sin. And I thought, am I guilty of the same thing? I'd say, in my heart, yes, I am. I've committed that in my heart. How could I sit in judgment with someone else even though I haven't done the deed, I've done it in my heart. Jesus said, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And I think the problem is the scribes and the Pharisees there in John 8. They were guilty of what the woman was guilty of. But they didn't want to repent. They didn't want to repent. And it's easy for us to look at someone else and say, you're a sinner. You've done wrong. But we don't look at ourselves with the same judgment. God wants us to look at ourselves first and allow him to cleanse us and purify us. Materialism. <clears throat> In 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul writing, he says, God is with contentment is great gain. And he writes about how riches will destroy us, will destroy our salvation, will take us away from God. Wealth, materialism, it's a huge trap today, taking people away from God, making us complacent and 
losing our passion for God. It's, it, wealth changes our lives, changes our culture. I'm shocked at what's happening with people around, and myself too. You know, we have more money than we used to, and we have more temptations than what we used to. Guess what? It's easier to be poor, I think. It really is. You don't have the many temptations. You don't have as many worries. You don't have as many things to worry about. And so materialism is something that grabs us. Jesus said wisely and correctly. He said, it's, it's easier for, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to make it to heaven. And he's talking about the riches when they grab our hearts, and they do. They do. I've seen it, and I've experienced it. Riches will grab your heart. Don't allow it. Repent of it. Don't covet them. <clears throat> I'd like to uh, uh, have a document here on the uh, board. I'd like to read this. This is a rendering of the Ten Commandments that I think is good for our day. And just consider this. As I read this, uh, <clears throat> take it to God in your hearts. The first commandment, no other gods. Have material goals rob me of my time with God? Do my priorities center around me or others or God? Is God clearly number one in my life? Does my love for God overwhelm every other love in my life? Second, second commandment, no graven images. Do I have possessions which, if taken from me, would cause me emotional distress? Am I building my assets at the expense of my walk with God? Do I value my possessions more than, my, than relationships? Am I eternal focused or temporal focused in my daily energies? Third commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Do I demean or profane what God has declared holy? Does my speech dishonor or disrespect God? Do I find myself thinking swear words without saying them? Do my daily conversations exalt God or profane him? The fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath holy. Do my Lord's Day activities honor God first and foremost as a tithe of my time? Do my Lord's activities feed my carnality or my spirituality? Is my Lord's Day truly a day of holy, pure worship to God? Do I participate in worship out of duty, out of heart of love? The fifth commandment, honor parents. Do I truly love, honor, and respect my parents, or do I endure them? Do I allow my parents to be a source of inspiration to me or a source of irritation? Do I welcome their input in my life and my personal ministry? The sixth commandment, do I do not kill? Do I get angry? Do I react when my rights are violated? Do I lash out even silently when I'm opposed? Have I forgiven my hurters? Do I secretly rejoice when one of my hurters have difficulties? Seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Are my thoughts about the opposite gender always pure? Do I secretly enjoy sensual thoughts or circumstances? Do I fantasize immoral scenes or circumstances? Do I secretly enjoy brief, lewd, pornographic images that pop up in my computer screen? Do I commit adultery in my heart? Do I watch pornography? Do romance novels that I read stir up my senses to levels of unrighteous activity? The Eighth Commandment, do not steal. Have I stolen anything? Do I steal time from my employer? Do I borrow things and fail to return them? Do I engage in activities that take time away from God? Have I taken advantage of another and caused them loss? The Ninth Commandment, do not bear false witness. Am I always truthful? Do I add spin and or exaggeration, especially to benefit myself? Do I embellish facts and present them as facts? Have I ever told a lie? Have I intentionally left a false impression for my personal benefit? The Tenth Commandment, do not covet. Am I truly content with what God has given me? Do I secretly envy those who have more than I do? Do I rejoice in the material success of others? Do I desire things that God has not given me grace to have? Am I fully satisfied with my wife and family that God has given me? These are the Ten Commandments. 
will be judged by them. We stand before God. It's God's standard. It's his standard of holiness and righteousness. It's what we'll be judged by. And I want to challenge us this evening. Where do we stand? Am I in, in violation of the Ten Commandments? Jesus said if we break one of them, it's the same as breaking all of them. I'd like for us to sing just as I am. I'm going to sit here. I'm just going to stick, take my seat here. And I'm going to encourage you to respond in whatever way you want. The benches are empty. You want to come up here and pray. I invite you to do that. If, someone wants you to, if you want someone to pray with you, we'll do that. Uh, but just come up and confess your sins to God. Make it right with God. And confess them. Be public about your expressions or about your, your I mean, you can say, well, I'm, I'm sorry in my heart. And that, that's okay. But to make a public expression has a lot of value. It helps other people pray for you. It helps people come around you and support you. And it sets you free because Satan can no longer say, aha, you still have this thing in your heart. No, you're free, you're clear. Let's, I'm, I'm going to sing, just as I am, uh, song leader, can you get that ready for us? And we'll just sing all the verses. I'm going to take my seat. And if you want to come up here and pray, you're welcome to do that. And after I'll turn it over to Brother Dean.